grab your Bibles. Make your way to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 18 this morning. We're going to be working our way through verses 15 through 20. And our passage this morning continues this theme that we looked at last week when we spent time looking at the parable of the sheep and the parable of the lost coin, and that we see this recovery process that is happening. The focus this morning shifts to church discipline, and it wraps up on two powerful promises that Jesus gives us concerning the power of prayer and the power when God's people gather together to form what is known as the church. I'm an individual who likes a plan of action, um, probably to a fault. I, I obsessively want to know things when things are going to happen and something is planned. I want to know where are we going. When we get there, what are we going to do? When we get there, who's going to be there? What do we need to take when we go? How long do we get to stay or how long do we have to stay, depending on the situation? Uh, I'm so obsessive about it, I drive my wife crazy because she'll have an activity or something planned with maybe some of her friends, and I'll ask her the questions even though it does not involve me whatsoever. Where are you going? Who's going to be there? What are you going to do? What are you going to eat? And she'll be like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to you. <laughs> this, is, this is my thing. Um, my obsessiveness has creeped down into our daughter. Uh, as many of you know, this uh, last, last month in June, uh, the students went to camp. My daughter began planning for camp in January. And as we get ready to plan a family trip to celebrate not only Jamie and I's anniversary, uh, but to celebrate Ethan being a senior, I imagine my daughter Abby has already started making plans about what she'd like to do, where, where we are, where, what she'd like to eat, what she would want to wear. Um, I gave her that trait, and, and I'm happy about it, but sometimes it drives people crazy. I bring that up because when it comes to our, our current series, you know, I, I've got this roadmap. I've got this plan. Uh, I know passages that we're going to be looking at in months down the road. Um, I've got a couple of resources that's been helping us. If, if you're visiting with us, this series is called Tell Me the Story of Jesus, where we're trying to bring the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together and to put them in a chronological order so we can get a better understanding of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that, so I know passages that are coming the only thing I don't know about this series is I don't know when it's officially going to end. But with that said, God has already laid on my heart where we're going to go after this series. And so I, and I like that, uh, that plan. And so I bring up planning because our passage this morning, again, we're in Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 15 here in a moment. Our passage is a very unique passage in that Jesus delivers a four-step plan when restoring a brother or sister in Christ after they have sinned or after they have wandered. The focus of the passage really deals with church discipline, and then Jesus delivers two more sayings after. And the reason it's unique, because if you read through the Gospels, you're going to find it's a very rare thing when Jesus lays out a step process on what you should do. When it comes to discipleship, it's follow. When it comes to evangelism, it's go. When it comes to gathering together with other believers, it's do it. But here he delivers this four-step plan, which means it must be important that we understand what he's teaching us. 
And it's ironic because when it comes to this plan dealing with church discipline, it's either something that God's people overlook or they do incorrectly, which is why a lot of churches develop large issues that could have been handled through this plan and sometimes denominations and mega churches take issues and they try to sweep them under the rug as if they don't have to deal with them. And then it begins to pile up and it just comes out and it makes national news and international news. And this has happened recently and it's happened in the last several years. It just seeps out. And so Jesus delivers this plan. So the first task we have this morning is to walk through this plan, which goes through verse 15 to verse 18. And then see how Jesus delivers two incredible promises on the power of prayer and the power of gathering together with, as God's people to form what is known as the church. So let's read our passage and we'll work our way through it. And the word of the Lord says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now this lesson stems from the previous teaching. If you look to the previous teaching here in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep. In the parable of the lost sheep, we see the joy that God has when he finds or recovers one of his children that has wandered away from his presence. <clears throat> so now Jesus, excuse me, <clears throat> now Jesus delivers how we as his people are to recover those who have wandered away in way into sin and how we are to restore them back into the body of believers, which is known as the church. Now the goal of church discipline and the goal that Jesus drives out of this passage is not to belittle an individual. It's not to belittle someone who's wrestling with sin. The goal of church discipline is grace-filled restoration. In 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we are told as God's people to aim for restoration. The word restoration is an easy word to define. It means to restore. But the Greek word holds even more definition. It means to put something back together or to build something back together. The word restoration carries the image from the Greek of sewing or mending something so that it could be repaired. And that's the goal of church discipline. It's to restore. It's to repair it. It's to build someone back together. And so the first step begins in verse 15. He says, Your brother sins against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So step one, when it comes to church discipline, is that it begins privately. In the verse 15, it can apply two things. 
The first thing it can apply is that a believer has sinned against another believer, and so there's been a disturbance within their relationship. The other implication it can apply is that a believer has become aware of another believer's habitual sin, a recurring sin, and so it has caused a ruffle in their relationship, and it's called a disruptance in their relationship with God, because that is what sin does. Sin impacts relationships with each other, and more importantly, sin impacts our relationship with God. We see this when the first sin came in, and we can read it back in Genesis. When Adam and Eve disobeyed directly what God told them not to do, their relationship was breached. They saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so not only their relation was impacted, but when God came into the garden, we're told he came in the cool of the day, they hid in fear because of his presence. And so their relationship was not only disrupted between each other, but is also disrupted between their maker and our God. With that said, we also have to keep this in mind. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this room, including myself, who does not wrestle with sin. The word sin implies doing something against God's will and God's word. The word sin literally means to miss the mark or to miss the target. And the mark and the target is God's perfection. It's his holiness according to his word and what he wants his people to live by. Now the step, this step in church discipline isn't saying when every believer walks into the doors of this building that we take them by the hand or take them by the arm and we take them to a room and we look them in the eye and says, you are a sinner. Because they can look right back at us and say the exact same thing. Well, so are you. This step deals with becoming aware, a believer becoming aware of another believer's habitual or recurring practice of sin. We all are going to mess up. But it's something that continues to be in a cycle. And so one believer goes to the other believer in private to have this discussion. For example, let's say you become aware of a believer who's in a relationship, but they're doing things in that relationship outside the confines of marriage, which they should not be doing. So what you would do is you would go to them personally and privately and in love, and let them know what you're doing is not honoring God. The issue which tends to occur is that the church tends to act more like the world than they do the Word. Instead of doing what Jesus tells us to do here, we talk about people behind their backs. We talk about them in conversations and say, well, they should know better. They should not do that. We don't talk to the person We talk about them. Truth is, if we don't have the courage to do what Jesus is telling us here in verse 15, perhaps we don't like confrontation. We don't hurt somebody's feelings. The reality is we aren't really concerned for our brother and sister in Christ that's dealing with the issue. And what that reveals is we really have a me issue instead of a their issue. The underlying instruction to all these steps is to come from a place of love And it must be backed by the word of God, not our opinion. That's the driving force. That is what go 
and tell him his fault is implying in verse 15. Go means to take the initiative. Don't wait for an individual who's wrestling with sin to come to you for help. Take the initiative because you love that person and go to them. To tell him his fault means you, you point it out. You show them through the word of God, this isn't right. This isn't how you should be acting. This isn't what you should be doing. This isn't what you should be saying. Again, the instruction to step is to be done privately. The if there, which Jesus says numerous times throughout these instructions, is a probability word. It means that there's a probability that the individual, the other believer, will listen to you, but there's also a probability that that individual won't listen to you. The word listen, which he again mentioned several times throughout these instructions, carries the meaning of the other believer responding properly to what has been revealed to the point that they change their course of action. Again, the, the whole goal of this is restoration and reconciliation all backed by love not belittling. But if, Jesus goes on, step one doesn't work, then move on to step two, which is found in verse 16. Step two means that we bring along witnesses. Now this isn't to gain up on the individual, but it's to show them that this matter concerns us, and we're concerned about them, and that it also concerns other believers who know, now know this individual is struggling with this situation and struggling in sin. What this means is church discipline does not begin on Sunday morning. It does not begin in deacon's meetings. It does not begin in small group meetings. It does not begin in family or business meetings. It begins individually. It's supposed to be personally in hopes that the matter won't have to be shared to a larger group of people. Church discipline also doesn't mean that you came to realize something about another believer and therefore you skipped step one and went straight to step two. And what I mean by that is sometimes people find out something about someone else and they think the best course of action is to bring it to the pastor or to the elders or to the deacons. And they skip step one altogether and it's become a much larger matter. That's step two. Step two is when you bring along other believers in order to confront the issue and to shine light on the situation. And I'm going to tell you this, sometimes bringing the pastor or the elders isn't the best group to bring. There's probably other believers who love that believer who's struggling and know that believer who's struggling a little bit more than we do. Because a lot of times people look at the pastor as like the principal at school. And you know the principal at school when you would see him? When you got in trouble. And some people aren't as willing to open up to the pastor or elders. And I know that sounds strange, but I, I've experienced. And so you take other individuals who love them before bringing it to a larger group. The command there in verse 16, one or two others along, that comes from the word of God. According to the word of God, nothing can be verified as truth unless it comes from the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. That's Deuteronomy 17.6. And in Deuteronomy 
It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall charge be established. And this practice became the normal practice for the first church. When Paul would write to the Corinthian believers, and if you read through First and Second Corinthians, you're going to see that the Corinthian church had a lot of issues. And Paul was trying to work those things out, but he reminds them every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That means they keep in step with step one, and understanding until step two is accomplished, we can't move to step three. He would write to Timothy, as Timothy pastored the church in Ephesus, another church which struggled, because churches struggle. Church is full of people who struggle with sin, and we come together in the name of Jesus, to represent God, but we're all struggling. That's why there's issues in church. But he writes to Timothy, he says, you cannot bring a charge against anyone except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And what this step does is it makes sure whatever issue was brought up with step one, it makes sure that it is not some sort of personal dispute between two people. It also makes sure that there's not some sort of vendetta that is going on between two people. It makes the issue a legitimate issue because it is the opposite of what God has said in his word. And step three begins in verse 17. Again, we find the word if. And Jesus is telling, look, if step one doesn't work, go to step two. If step two doesn't work, move on to step three. And the importance of going through these steps is to win back the brother or sister, and Jesus is telling us, this is why there's so many steps. Don't give up on them. Jesus says, if, verse 17, he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Word or phrase, refuses to listen, means that they're paying no attention. They've become stubborn, immovable. They've become hard-hearted. They become like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus and King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. And so we come to step three, and it's take it to the church. Here in verse 17, the word church is mentioned twice. Do you know, throughout all the Gospels, all four Gospels, the word church is only mentioned three times, and only in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the word church means an assembly, a gathering of a community of believers, the important thing about church discipline is nowhere is it to be displayed to the public. Meaning it, has to be, it cannot be blasted on social media. When it comes to issues, it's not to be talked about with unbelievers. It's a matter between two believers and a matter then between three and four believers and then a matter within the church. And the format for this proceeding isn't given, but it's implied that this is all to be done in love because the goal isn't to drag another believer's name through the mud, but it's to restore them. It's to reconcile them. It's to mend them and build them back together. For us today, if something like this would occur, it'd probably be dealt at a family meeting. Because when we gather on Sunday mornings, my prayers are people here who are not yet believers. And so we wouldn't bring an issue before believers. The matter doesn't concern unbelievers. Finally, in the last part of verse 17, we have step four. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So step four, we come to a place where we treat them as an unbeliever. If they won't listen to another believer, if they won't listen to a small group of believers, and they won't listen to a gathering of believers, then Jesus says we should come to the conclusion, this is not a judgmental conclusion, but come to the conclusion that this individual is by name only believer, meaning they are nominal. They're more attached to the things of the world than they are to the things of God. This is not teaching about excommunication from the church, even though some denominations have taken that. And the reason we can come to that conclusion, because if the individual was never a believer, then they were never a part of the church. The church exists only as a gathering of believers. The word Gentile can also be read as pagan or unbeliever. It was an individual in this particular context that was outside of the family of God. The title tax collector implies someone who is corrupt. And so when he puts these two phrases together, he means that this individual is lost and they need to be found. Jesus is not saying we give up on them. He's not telling us to abandon them. You know, we have to come to this conclusion when we get to step four, that now I really understand who they are. Now I really know where their heart is. Now I understand that they are lost, and we must imitate Jesus because Jesus came to save and find the lost. Jesus' final instruction in verse 18 is giving the church the authority to take these steps. The word bind or bound means to declare something improper or to declare it forbidden. And so the word loose carries the opposite meaning. It means to declare what is lawful and what is beneficial and what will be permitted. And the authority and the declaration of the church to be able to make this sort of pattern or these, take these steps comes from the authority of Christ who is the living word of God. And so we go through these steps and we take up these matters and we allow the, the word of God to direct our decisions. Fortunately, throughout history, the church has not done these things. And unfortunately, throughout history, the church has taken the authority that Jesus Christ has given the church, but they haven't relied on God's word for it. One of the greatest, most prominent instances in history led to the Reformation led by Martin Luther. In John chapter 20, Jesus tells his disciples that this course of action must be driven by the Holy Spirit. So that's why it seems when we come to verse 19 that Jesus is kind of pivoting away to a different sort of conversation when he just talked about church discipline. But he's telling us that these things that we do when we're dealing with another believer who is struggling has to be guided by the Spirit and it has to be relied on in prayer. He's pivoting, not pivoting, but revealing, you know, that's, that's where we have to go. Because if we make decisions based on our own nature, they're always going to be wrong. At the same time, he delivers two amazing promises in these two verses, in verses 19 and 20. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And the first amazing promise comes about prayer, and that's the power of praying together. Here's the thing, Jesus is not talking about corporate prayer. Corporate prayers like what happened when Jason started the announcements and he prayed over us all before we started worship. 
Corporate prayer is like what I just did before we started getting into the Word of God. We do corporate prayer before we dismiss and we leave this place. Corporate prayer is the time when we sit with our family at the dinner table and someone prays over the food, maybe over our family, and asks God to bless it so we can be blessed in the eating of it. What Jesus is teaching us here is that we are to take a small group of believers, two or three, four, five maybe, and everyone in that group, when we gather together, everyone in that group prays together. So it's not just one individual. But everyone is participating by going to the Father. And this doesn't eliminate the importance of individual prayer. You look throughout Scripture, you see Jesus modeled the power of individual prayer in his ministry. But he's telling us there's power when believers gather together and pray, and they pray in agreement. Some people read verse 19, and they can easily take it out of context. (laughs) If two of you agree on earth about anything to ask... It will be done for him. And I hear that and I say, all right, well, I need to get Charlie and Brian and anybody else who wants to join us. And we're all going to pray that at least one of us wins the lottery. And then we're going to split it four ways and we'll make sure we all tithe on it too because, you know, we want to be faithful. And, and that's not what Jesus is telling us here. He's, he's telling us that prayer, when we pray together, is to be done according to the will and the word of God, knowing that just because we prayed for something, it might not be God's will for that something to happen. And God will never go against his will. He never will. Yet through prayer, and when we pray together, there's power in that prayer. Leon Morse writes that prayer is effective. Not because of the power or the number of praying people, but because the answer is given by my Father who is in heaven. Prayer is offered to a mighty God, one who commonly does his greatest work on earth in response to the prayers of his humble people. Second promise is found in verse 20, and it concerns the church. When believers gather, they do so in the presence of of Christ. And I love how Jesus makes this statement where two or three are gathered. He doesn't give some astronomical number. He said, well, you need at least 50. You need at least enough to form a quorum. You need to have a hundred or a thousand. He says, two or three. Meaning about 8.30 this morning, and the worship team started showing up, even though we were joking around and talking. And there's only about eight of us, I think. We came in the name of Christ, and we were in the presence of Christ. That means if the, it was only the Hurchin family showed up and the elders and their family showed up, maybe one person to run the sound. If we come in the name of Christ, we're in the presence of Christ. We could have 20 people in this room. And trust me, if there were only 20 people in this room on a Sunday, this room would seem very empty. But the promise of Jesus, if those 20 come in the name of Christ, they're going to be in the presence of Christ. Jesus is telling us something just that I need to learn. I think a lot of pastors need to learn. He's saying that it isn't the size. It isn't the attendance. Those things don't matter. What matters is in what name do we gather in when we come? A.W. Tozer wrote, and so it is better to have 
a little church that is real than a big church that is artificial. It is better to have a simple religion that is real than have a great ornate ceremony that is only hollow and empty. Now that word gathered in verse 20 is not just coming together, but it's coming together in agreement. And so we come together in agreement, Christ is going to be glorified here. We come together in agreement that the gospel and the word of God is going to be preached here. We come together in agreement that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to all of our hearts. We come together in agreement that God alone is going to be lifted up and worshipped in this place. We gather in the name of Christ because there's power in the name of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The statement at the very end of verse 20, there am I among them. Even here, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he's not going to be physically with them, but he would be spiritually with them through the Holy Spirit. And it ties back to how Jesus was introduced to his earthly father, Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1, where he says, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here's this incredible promise. When we gather as God's people, no matter how great the attendance is, but when we gather in this promise, God is with us and we are in God's presence. So you may have woken up this morning and thought, well, I'm going to go to church. But here's the truth of the promise. You didn't wake up to go to church. You woke up to come here to form the church. Because that's how the church exists. It's a gathering, a community, an assembly of God's people. And just in this passage, we see that there's power when believers work together. Even if it's in a difficult situation where we're trying to reconcile a brother or sister in Christ. We see there's power when believers pray together. And finally, we see there's power when believers gather together. So you may be in a building which the church recognizes as a church building. But my question for you this morning is, are you a part of the church? And I'm not necessarily talking about membership, but are you a believer? You may go to where a church is gathered, but if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, then you are not a part of the church. But that can change today, and that's why God brought you to this place, to change that about you. And it's incredibly easy. God made it so easy for us, but it's incredibly and eternally important. It begins... By saying to God, admitting to him that you are sinners. We mentioned sin is missing the mark. It's missing the target. And then the target's not our target. It's God's. But then believing that God loves us so much, he sent his one and only son who hit the target every stinking time. And he died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later that we might be forgiven for our sins and be granted eternal life. 
And the Bible says if we believe that in our heart, it does not say we have to understand every theological or doctrinal issue about that, but we believe in our heart that God loved us that much and Jesus did what the Bible said he did, that we must confess him as our Lord and Savior and our need for him to forgive us. If you're here this morning, that's something you've yet to do in your life. I'm going to be standing down here. We're going to have a moment of invitation. I'm going to ask you to come down. And you don't have to say much. You just say, Pastor Mike, I, I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven. I want to have eternal life. But maybe you're here this morning and you realize that, because we've all messed up, you haven't dealt with someone else's issue the way that Jesus instructs us to do it. I'm going to tell you right now, here's a simple answer. Facebook's not on the steps. We're going to have this time of invitation. I'm going to ask uh, Lucas and Bridget to come up and lead us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this day. Lord, thank you. You knew that when we gathered to form your body, the church, you knew that there's going to be issues at times that we'd have to deal with, and you loved us so much you gave us the process to deal with those issues. Lord, thank you for the promise that we can come before you with our brothers and sisters in Christ and lift up prayers, lift up struggles, lift up praises, and you hear them. Thank you for the promise that we haven't just been sitting in this room. We've been in the presence of the Holy of Holies. We praise you for you alone are worthy of it. And Lord, I pray if someone in this room I pray in the name of Jesus. If someone in this room does not know he's their Lord and Savior, Father, I pray your spirit would speak to their heart the only way it can. And they would walk down this aisle and today would be the day of their salvation. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.